1: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans, the 12th chapter. Romans chapter 12 is where we are today. We begin a short series that will take us a few weeks just to dig into this chapter, Romans chapter 12. Here's the key concept this morning. We are to be transformed by Christ. Transformed by Christ. While you're finding Romans chapter 12, let me set the stage for you. The book of Romans is... Paul's theological manifesto. He writes this letter to the Christians in Rome, and it's ground zero for the understanding of the theology that will propel his ministry forward. He writes uh, this letter to the Romans while he's in Corinth during his third missionary journey, which puts it around the year A.D. 57. But through all of history, the book of Romans has had a major impact in this movement called Christianity. Back in AD 386, Augustine was under conviction of the Spirit because of the sexually promiscuous life he was living. He knew we shouldn't be living like that, and, and it was tearing him up, up inside, and he picked up his Bible, and he read Romans chapter 13, verse 13 and 14, where it says, Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the sinful uh, the desires of the sinful nature and it is those verses that pierced his heart and turned him towards a full commitment to Jesus as his lord Martin Luther was a monk trying to impress God with His righteousness in order to earn salvation through His deeds. And he came across Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That changed his heart. And through him, the world was changed as he brought about what we now call the Reformation. And the preaching turned to that of Grace and faith. Two hundred years later, John Wesley was in a Bible study. It was an evening Bible study in London. And in that Bible study, they were actually reading the introduction to the commentary on the book of Romans that Martin Luther wrote. And as he listened to the words that Luther wrote, just introducing this book that he loved so much, he says in his journal, I found my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And he went on to lead a revival in England where tens of thousands of people came to know Christ as Savior. And that revival became the moral force which moved towards the abolition of slavery in that nation. Add to that untold thousands of people who have said yes to salvation through Jesus Christ through the use of the five-verse chain called the Romans Road which clearly explains just moving from verse to verse our problem and God's solution. But I consider Romans chapter 12 to be the high point, if you will, of this great book, a master chapter in a masterpiece letter. So we're going to spend three weeks just diving into this chapter. Now, as we start, for me to talk about chapter 12 as a as Paul's masterpiece, is to say something that Paul would never have considered. Because the book of Romans that's in your Bible is actually a letter, a letter to Christians who are living in Rome. And when you write a letter, you don't divide a letter up into chapter and verses. You don't do that, and neither did the Apostle Paul. The chapters and the verses are added later by scholars to just help us in our Bible study. Sometimes the chapters work well. Sometimes the divisions really don't quite work well because it's in the middle of a thought or something like that. But Romans 12 stands alone very nicely. So read along with me as we start. Romans 12 verse 1. He starts by saying, present your body. And when he talks about the body there, he's emphasizing that in a sense to illustrate the whole person. Give all of who you are in an obvious fashion, in a fashion that can be seen over to God. It's almost like he's saying, stretch yourself out on that altar So that it's illustrating that you are a sacrifice. And the motive for doing this is, in so doing, you are reacting to the mercy that you've experienced in Jesus Christ. In fact, the word mercy there is actually plural. Some of your translations will say mercies. It's better. Because he's not only pointing towards the cross, although he's primarily saying that's where mercy is illustrated, but he's also remembering that we experience God's mercies all the time, every day in an ongoing fashion. Paul is saying, keep mercy in mind. Because you don't deserve the hope that you have you don't deserve the forgiveness that is yours you don't deserve the ongoing assistance that you receive from the Almighty when he's involved in your life as you are a Christ follower you don't deserve that it is God's mercy and in reaction in response to the mercy present yourselves as a sacrifice that's the proper response now I want you to see that that would be an interesting twist for a Roman in the first century to read, present yourself as a sacrifice in response to mercy. Because it's backwards. In their society, in the pagan world, you, you gave the sacrifice to gain mercy. Okay? So, I'm going sac- to make a sacrifice so that the crops come in. I'm going to make a sacrifice so that we win the war. I'm going to make a sacrifice so that this project that I'm involved in goes successfully for me. I want God to, the gods to be merciful, so I'm going to do this sacrifice. And Paul is saying, no, no, for those of you who are following Christ, it goes the other way around. You have already received mercy. Now, sacri- make a sacrifice in response, and it's yourself. And it is your reasonable act of worship. But there's something else that would have tripped them up. He says, I want you to present your body as a living sacrifice. You see, sacrifices die. Sacrifices don't live. And there is something embedded in this thought that is meant to die. When you present yourself as a living sacrifice to God, something is meant to to die. And what is meant to die is the life you would have lived outside of Jesus Christ. That is meant to die. But you yourself are meant to go on living in a radical life of obedience. He's saying, send your life in a new direction. And in this direction, it looks like, You're sacrificing yourself to God. Present your bodies, living sacrifices, wholly pleasing to God. And he emphasizes this this physicality to it because he wants us to recognize that this is your ordinary life. Present yourself every day, not just Sundays, all the time, in a tangible sense. The message is a paraphrase of the New Testament, and the message... Um, writes it this way, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. So why is that important? It's important because we need to guard against a very ancient, but once again popular, way of false thinking. And that way says this, Really, it's my intentions that matter most. I mean, after all, I'm a, I'm a spiritual person. And that means that there's something in me that vibrates towards spiritual things. So, you know, I intend to obey. I intend to, the best. Uh, it's just on the inside, I have all those hopes and intentions, but it's on the outside that I'm disobedient. I mean, I don't mean to cheat on my taxes. I don't mean to pad my expense account. I don't mean to look lustfully at that woman. I don't mean to desire with envy other people's stuff. The real me, the inner me, is filled with good intentions. And isn't that what really counts? And Paul is saying, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to move beyond your intentions. The change that God wants to work in your life, it starts on the inside, but it must work its way to the outside in the way that you live all the time. And it must look like obedience. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. Obedience is seen on the outside. So then the question is, well, what does obedience look like on the outside? And we read on in verse 2. It looks like you being a non-conformist. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. What you believe must influence how you behave. And we live in a world that doesn't value the things of God, doesn't look to the Word of God, doesn't care about the principles of God, but you who do, when you do, you will stand out. It's interesting, the word that's translated world there is most often in the Bible translated age. Age. So he's really kind of saying this, don't fit in to your time and place. Don't fit in to what's going on around you here and now be a nonconformist, stand out. But as soon as I say that, I remind myself, that's hard. It's hard. I don't know if you remember the TV show Candid Camera. There was an episode of Candid Camera that, I mean, I just remembered this episode. It was classic. It was entitled Face the Rear. And what it was, was they set up a camera and they had a victim. And the victim was a guy who got onto the elevator and he waited for the doors to close. What he didn't know was, as he was waiting, three actors got on the elevator with him. And instead of facing the front of the elevator like everybody does, right, they, turned, they faced the back of the elevator. And he's looking at these guys facing the back of the elevator, to, you know, obviously, doesn't quite know what to do. Then a fourth person gets on. He, too, faces the back of the elevator, and as the doors are closing, you see this guy turn and face the back of the elevator. So, you know, maybe they know something I don't know. I mean, what's what's this all about, right? They did it over and over again, and every single time the The people in the elevator, the victims, that you could see that they were uncomfortable with it. You could see this was like, this is not what we do. But yet again, still, they did it. They turned and they faced the the back of the elevator as everybody else was doing it. It illustrates exactly the way we are. That's human nature. We want to fit in. We want to blend in. We want to go along. But Paul is looking at the uh, the, uh, Roman Christians and he's thinking about them and he's saying, listen, not so with you. Not so with you. It's a call to holiness. It's a call to, be, to stand out as different because we are holy. Don't fit into the age and the place and the time. This emphasis runs all throughout the Bible. Moses warns the Israelites before they go into the promised land, listen, you must not follow the practices of the people you're going to find there. Jesus regularly in His ministry called out the hypocrisy of the, of the religious leaders and He said, don't be like them. Don't fit into that. Paul realizes that the recipients of this letter live in a pagan, violent, power-hungry, sexually perverted society. He says, you need to be different than that. It needs to be radical obedience. Radical obedience, which causes you to stand out as a nonconformist. And the only way you're going to get that is if you experience something different in your mind. Read on. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mind renewal is what is called for if we're going to live this nonconformist life. Why is that? Because you become what dominates your thinking. You turn into the thing that you think about most. Is it the accumulation of stuff that dominates your thinking? I just want to get more and more. I, I'm, I want to go shopping every day, just kind of more and more. It, or is it maybe your, your mind dominated by worry? Or maybe you worry about losing the stuff you're accumulating? Is your mind dominated by plans for pleasure, only just thinking about the next vacation, the next recreation thing we're doing? Or maybe your mind is dominated by lust or sensuality or greed. It could be as simple as your mind dominated by trivial pop stuff, you know, the latest fad, the latest movie, the latest song, whatever's in. Some of these things I'm naming are bad. Some of them are neutral, but none of them should dominate your thinking. Because your mind is the battleground for your soul and your emotions. And you will come what you think about. What you think about, you're going to act on. And when you think about and act on, you're going to love. So Paul says you need to be renewed in your mind. And it comes when we put our mind in the things of the Lord. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, "Teach teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I believe in your commands. We have to put our minds there. There are certain people that I know so well that I can think of things that, I mean, I I know what they would like and what they would dislike. I can tell you if they'd like this or that. Maybe you're like this too. You can go through a store and you look at something and you say, oh, so-and-so would love that. That's just their style or that's just their color. Maybe you're watching a TV show and you say, oh, I have to recommend this to so-and-so. They would love this, right? See, here's mind renewal. Mind renewal is the process of getting to know God on that level. So that you can understand what He would want and not want for your life and for the life around you. What He would prefer and not prefer. Okay? Now he says the way to get, get to know God at that level is through mind renewal. Notice he doesn't say it's through heart renewal emotional renewal. Don't be fooled into thinking that the, the, the change that God wants to make in your life is going to start in your heart emotionally and bypass your brain. It's not going to, okay? We get all excited. We get all emotional about things, and, and what happens is we get emotional about things, and for a while we're all emotional about Jesus. It's great, but then soon we're emotional about something else, I'm emotional about God over here, but hey, guess what, the backstreet boys are getting back together. Now I'm emotional about that, <laughs> okay? We're, that's human nature. God didn't design us to be led in that way. He comes to our mind first, and then it gets to our heart. It's not that it's not emotional at all, but it gets there through the mind. It always starts in knowing, and then it moves to feeling. Why? Because the biblical faith that you are a part of if you know Christ is about the facts of what God has done. Eternity has penetrated the here and now, and it's done so in the Word of God and in the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. We must allow our minds to be renewed by the reality and the teaching that He shows us here. Why? So that when we are emotional about our relationship with God, we are emotional about the true God and not just the God we make up. That's why it starts here. And then He shows us the big payoff. Something that you didn't expect to come, and here it is. After you do all that, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's the big payoff. And that's the conclusion that first time I ever read this, I didn't see that coming. That's where all this is leading. When you give yourself totally to God, allow mind renewal to take place, then you will be able to understand God's will for your life. And you'll be able, implied, to desire that will and to follow it. Now, that's a bold promise, and especially so since the way He explains God's will for you. It is good, it is pleasing, and it is perfect. But here's the point. God's will will never seem right to us as long as we're thinking the way the world thinks. God's will will never seem right to us as long as we're running after the pleasures of the world and exactly following the priorities of those who don't have Christ as their Savior. As long as you think that your faith as a Christian is great for getting you into heaven, but it somewhat gets in the way of you having fun here and now, you're never going to grab hold of God's will for you because what He's saying will seem like foolishness, even if you're inside the kingdom. See what I'm saying? Well, oh, I wouldn't go that far. Well, I'm not going to get all, you know, so bought in. I mean, I'm a Christian, but let's, you know, keep a balance here. No, there's no balance. He's saying, be a living sacrifice. Lay it all out. Live for God. But when we are transformed by that and continuing to be transformed, we'll be able to see His will and we'll see the will as wonderful. There is a logic that He's giving us here. And I want to work the logic back for you, okay? Starting from the conclusion and then working back the steps that He's given us. Number one, God's will for you is good and pleasing and perfect. So, it's worth finding. Go back a step. There is a way for you to know it. Go back a step. The way involves transformation away from worldly things. Go back a step. This transformation always happens by mind renewal. Go back a step. All of this comes as we see ourselves as totally given over to God, a living sacrifice. Go back a step. That is what God says is reasonable in light of the mercy that you've received. That's the logic. And then you say to yourself, well, if God's will is so good and pleasing, why does He make it so hard to find? Wouldn't it be better if He just kind of made it like a spiritual GPS? I'll put in my coordinates, and it says, please follow the highlighted route for your life. Wouldn't that be great? God could have contrived a system like that, but He didn't because He knows us. And he knows that what we gain too easily, we value too lightly. We must not value lightly God's will of God, the, the will of God. He says to us, look, your discernment, when you find it, it leads to delight. It doesn't mean that every moment of your life is going to be bliss. Paul suffered for Jesus, but it does mean this. In the center of God's will for your life, there is a joy that cannot be explained by any other thing. It's unlike any other experience, and you'll be connected to what is good, and you'll be participating in what is perfect. Ultimately, it will be pleasing. Why? Because God's will for you is always shaped by God's love for you. God's will for you is always shaped by God's love for you. He does not want to make you miserable. He wants to make you holy. His will for you is shaped by love. So be transformed by mind renewal. Find yourself in the center of God's perfect will, because there it is good, it is pleasing, and it is perfect. Lord Jesus, thank You for the way You work in our lives. Thank You for the grace that we experience and for ongoing transformation. We find the word new over and over again in the teaching of the gospel, because we are transformed into something that we didn't used to be, but now we are new in Christ. Help us to keep that going by Your power. Enable us to be surrendered to You, we pray. In Your name we ask it. Amen.
2: Amen. If you know this song, please sing along with me as we just offer ourselves as a vessel to the Lord to be used for His glory. crushing in the crushing in the pressing Thank okay. you.
1: for the benediction. And maybe you're here and there is a transformation that needs to take place in your life. A fuller commitment to your Lord or maybe for the first time saying yes to Jesus. We have prayer counselors next to the organ by the table. They will wait for you. They will pray with you and pray for you. Whatever's going on, they can represent you to the throne of grace. But first, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you are making that transformation. None of us has arrived. We're all in progress, but help us to progress. And Lord, we pray in the way that we live, in the words that we say, you would be represented well in the week ahead. Enable us to give you glory, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming.